Dorothy L. Sayers is well known for many things. As a writer, a translator, a playwright, a theologian and a feminist. She was among the first women to receive a degree from Oxford University. Her work in setting up the Detection Club and her reviews of other authors' work were crucial in establishing detective fiction as a genre and even an art all of its own. And of course, she's remembered as the creator of Lord Peter Whimsey, her ever-popular aristocratic sleuth. Like many professional and successful writers, Sayers lived a semi-public life, with both her writing and details about her private life in demand by newspapers and magazines. And to an extent, she played the game as well as many of her contemporaries, joining in with discussions about the future direction of the whodunit and speaking at events and on the radio. But there was one thing that she never shared, not even with her closest friends, although elements of it made its way into her fiction. In this episode, we're going to learn the truth of Dorothy's secret. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. In this episode, we're going to look more closely at Dorothy L. Sayers' life during the 1920s and learn how some seismic events in her personal life influenced the detective novels she wrote during this time and after. On the 14th of October 1920, Dorothy L. Sayers stood in the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford and received her first-class degree in French. She had finished her studies in June 1915, but it wasn't until five years later that the university allowed women to officially graduate, rather than just taking the examinations, but never being given the same title that male students received by right. She was among the first cohort of women to go through this ceremony, and the incursion of women into the sacredly male space of Oxford academia that the spectacle represented was to resurface in her detective fiction 15 years later as the novel Gordy Knight. Sayers benefited from having parents who were both able and willing to make her an allowance towards her living expenses while she was in her 20s, but she still lived a somewhat precarious existence. Over the next several years, she tried out various jobs. She worked in publishing, did bits of freelance editing and translation, and stepped in as a temporary teacher at schools in London and Hull. But she was determined not to succumb as she saw it and spend her career in a school, as Mo Moulton lays out in their book about Sayers and her Oxford contemporaries, the Mutual Admiration Society. Teaching was one of a vanishingly small number of career paths that the educated, literary-inclined woman could respectably pursue in the 1920s. While pulling together this patchwork living, Sayers was also working on the first Peter Whimsey novel and enjoying a lively social life in London. By 1921, she had met and fallen in love with the Russian-American writer John Kornos, with whom she had a passionate, if confusing, relationship. She revelled in making lovely meals for him and, in her letters, writes of her hopes that they might marry and have children. Kornos, however, seems to have wanted a more modern, free love kind of affair. According to Sayers' friend and later biographer, Barbara Reynolds, Sayers and Kornos did have a physical relationship, but, quote, stopped short of consummation. 
Sayers was at this time internally conflicted over what her high Anglican religion had taught her versus what she as a modern young woman in 1921 might want to do. She and Cornos fell out over what she euphemistically referred to afterwards as, quote, a question of practical Christianity, that is, contraception, and his refusal to countenance marriage to her. Both Sayers and Cornos would infuse their fiction with the tumult from this unhappy time. Sayers got in first, giving the scenario to crime writer Harriet Vane and her murdered lover Philip Boys in 1930's Strong Poison. Cornos then followed up with his 1932 novel, The Devil is an English Gentleman, in which his central character Richard says, quote, I'm not the marrying kind, but offers that you might become my mistress. If we pull along all right for a space, we can discuss marriage. But that would come ten years later. In September 1922, John Cornos went on an extended trip to America and didn't write to Sayers at all. A couple of years later, she found out that he'd married an American detective novelist called Helen Kessner Statiswaite. This, despite his vehement objection to marrying her and his previous derision for the art of detective fiction. It was all extremely wounding, and Sayers gave some of that simmering hurt to Harriet Vane who in Strong Poison says, when speaking of Philip Boys, I quite thought he was honest when he said he didn't believe in marriage, and then it turned out to be a test, to see whether my devotion was abject enough. Emotionally destroyed by the Cornos affair and his subsequent departure, Sayers then almost immediately took up with Bill White, a car salesman and motorcycle enthusiast who happened to be staying with her upstairs neighbours. They had a very different kind of relationship. White was openly disdainful of being too literary, and preferred the more immediate pleasures of dancing and going to the pub. But Sayers was happy with him. Having tortured herself over the question of premarital sex while with Cornos, she seems to have found her own answer with White. They used contraception, and for a while everything was fine. Her first detective novel, Whose Body, was published in 1923, and she was at work on the next whimsy story, Clouds of Witness. But then she found out that she was pregnant, and everything changed. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, 
an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. When Dorothea Sayers told Bill White that she was pregnant, he seems to have run for the hills as fast as possible. He was already married, although it's not clear when in their relationship that Sayers found this out. His wife and daughter had been living in Southbourne in Dorset while he looked for work in London and went about with Sayers. He'd even spent Christmas with her at her parents' home in Christchurch, Cambridgeshire, so perhaps his own family life was not particularly stable. Regardless, when faced with the news of this new child, White quickly ceased to play any meaningful role in Sayers' life. She was by this time working as an advertising copywriter at SF Benson's, so she had a steady income as well as her writing. But she also had an office job and co-workers who would notice if she suddenly became an unmarried mother. Peter Whimsey, by the way, would later enrol at a fictionalised version of this firm in her 1933 novel, Murder Must Advertise. Over the next few months of 1923, Sayers considered the extremely limited options open to an unmarried pregnant woman in the 1920s. She did discuss the possibility of an abortion with a doctor friend, Alice Chance, even though it was then both a dangerous and illegal route to pursue. She ultimately decided to keep the child, but to make its existence a secret from almost everybody in her life, most especially her parents. Meanwhile, she managed to conceal her pregnancy from her colleagues at Benson's, or if they did notice, they turned a blind eye, and she was granted eight weeks of leave for ill health, which covered the last two months of her pregnancy. She kept her friends and parents at arm's length during much of this time, writing letters about how busy she was with the next whimsy novel. One of the more remarkable aspects of this story is the actions of Bill White's wife. While he had abandoned Sayers, his wife, when she was told that her husband had fathered a child from an affair out of wedlock, was kindness itself. It was she who arranged for Sayers to have the baby at a nursing home near Southbourne, and during that time Mrs White and her own daughter stayed at Sayers' flat in London to feed her cat forward her mail and keep up the fiction for any acquaintances who called that Sayers was just on sick leave from work and definitely not away in the countryside giving birth to an illegitimate baby. Once she decided to keep the baby, Sayers still didn't have many options. Formal adoption didn't become legal in Britain until 1926, so there was very little safe or regulated infrastructure for those seeking it. Informal adoptions happened all the time, But Sayers seems to have been wary of handing her child over to complete strangers and potentially having no contact in the future. Two days before the baby arrived, Sayers finally wrote to her cousin Ivy, who was the daughter of her mother's widowed sister. Dorothy and Ivy had been close as children, and now Ivy worked as a foster parent, living in Cowley near Oxford. Sayers had visited Ivy's home and seen how happy the children she cared for were. She therefore asked Ivy to take charge of her child too. It was in many ways a good solution, since it meant the baby would be well cared for and always within reach should Sayers' own circumstances change. 
but it was also a huge risk to the secrecy of the situation, because it meant that Sayers's mother could easily find out any time that the child her sister and niece were caring for was, in fact, her own grandchild. Still, Ivy was happy to help, and Sayers must have judged the arrangement worth the risk. On the 3rd of January 1924, Dorothy L. Sayers gave birth to a son at the nursing home in Southbourne. It was a difficult birth, but Sayers wrote later about how proud she was of what her body had achieved in bringing her son into the world. She named him John Anthony. The area on the birth certificate for the father was left blank. While still recovering, Sayers wrote to Ivy and told her the whole story, so that she knew who John Anthony's real parents were when she took charge of him. Sayers suggested that her boy go by his father's surname, John Anthony White. She also wrote to her own parents during her three-week convalescence at the nursing home, pretending that she was still at home in London, working on clouds of witness. Miraculously, from then on, Sayers seems to have managed to keep her secret. Ivy was a faithful friend, non-judgmental and supportive at a time when many would have reacted to Sayers' status as an unmarried mother with horror. The addition of John Anthony to her life, even in secret, did change Sayers' outlook on work, however. Rather than focusing on more literary or translation projects, she continued to work on advertising copy at Benson's by day, as well as working hard on more whimsy novels and stories in her free time, so that she had plenty of money to provide for him, as well as maintaining her own household. Although she'd made the decision to live apart from her son, Sayers didn't sideline him in her mind. As John Anthony grew up under Ivy's loving care, his mother wrote to her regularly for news and visited often, collecting snapshots of her boy as he grew that she never showed to her friends. She occasionally would tell strangers about this long-distance kind of motherhood that she was thrust into, but very carefully kept it from her own social and family circle. When Sayers married the journalist Mac Fleming in 1926, Ivy sent a gift of a beautiful set of chessmen, which I imagine inspired the set that Harriet Vane covets in Gordy Knight. Six weeks after they were married, Sayers took Mac to Cowley to meet John Anthony. The boy knew her as Cousin Dorothy, who visited sometimes and brought gifts, and now he had a cousin Mac too. But although Mac was supportive up to a point, he wasn't interested in having the boy come to live with them. It seems Sayers had hope for this early on in their marriage, but it wasn't to be. They lived in a small flat without room for a child, and one or both of them would have had to give up work to care for him. As two career-minded writers, and with Mac struggling with chronic health problems from injuries sustained during the First World War, this didn't come naturally. Instead, Sayers chose to keep up her detective fiction and her advertising work, bringing in enough money both for her own household and to support her son. When he was ten, John Anthony was told that his cousins had adopted him, and that his surname was now Fleming. As her son grew up, Sayers began to write to him about books, writing, and what his future might hold. Despite the difficult decision she'd made and the secrecy she maintained, she cared deeply about him. In the summer of 1940, she wrote a heartbreakingly practical letter advising him to remain in Oxfordshire for his safety, and telling him that if she was to be killed in an air raid, he and Ivy must get in touch with her solicitors for her will, which incidentally would reveal that he was her son and sole heir, although since she survived the war he was not destined to find that out yet. 
She also told him that, quote, in the event of a German occupation of this country, be careful not to advertise your connection with me. Writers of my sort will not be popular with the Gestapo. But the guilt that Sayers felt about her actions in the early 1920s never quite left her. In 1943, she was recommended to the Archbishop of Canterbury for an honorary doctorate of divinity in recognition of her Christian scholarship in works like The Man Born to be King and The Mind of the Maker. But Sayers ultimately declined the honour, saying, quote, I should feel better about it if I was a more convincing kind of Christian. Biographer Barbara Reynolds speculates that this feeling stemmed from her lingering uncertainty around John Antony's birth and whether the publicity involved in receiving the degree would result in word of her illegitimate son getting out. So there we have it. That was Dorothy's secret. It's really quite extraordinary that she was able to keep the truth of John Antony's existence away from most of her own family and friends for so long. I think we can assume that some may have guessed, but since Sayers didn't raise it herself, they were discreet about their suspicions. In a way, it could be said that we owe the existence of at least some of the twelve Lord Peter Whimsey novels to John Antony's birth, since without the need to support him, Sayers might have moved on to her religious writing and theological work much sooner than she did. The connection between Dorothy L. Sayers and John Anthony Fleming was only revealed to the world after Sayers died in 1957, because her son was the sole beneficiary in her will, and therefore the inheritor of her literary estate. Although motherhood perhaps didn't happen as she wanted, his birth still changed her, and keeping the secret of what he meant to her was a defining feature of her life. Her inner conflict and grief about it is there in her writing, making it deeper and more emotionally true. And as John Anthony Fleming said himself of his mother in an interview given shortly before his death in 1984, she did the very best she could. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.